Well, I would have been happy to sing longer, maybe have a time of prayer and worship. Thank you for that, Matthew. Two weeks ago, we were looking at what subject class? Ah, one student remembers. And uh, what was the homework? Couldn't resist. All right. Um, last passage we studied. Last book. <laughs> so could we go over the exact same thing and, and nobody would be bored? Hmm. Who were the uh, main characters in the last one we studied? Come on, we're all in groups, remember? We're in two groups. What's that? One of the, well, yeah, you got the homework from the students. From Philip, oh, right, yeah. We're looking at the woman at the well, and um, uh, we started in chapter one of John's Gospel, how the, uh, this woman with a new encounter of Christ uh, went and to her old crowd, right? We saw the easy steps, the beginnings, where the devout, well-discipled by anointed preacher and their encounter with Christ, and then they went to talk to their close, serious-minded family and friends. That's the first line of evangelism, to the devout, to close family, uh, to, and to close friends, right? Lord doesn't just send you out to the wolves on day one. Sounds great. And then we looked at the woman at the well. Um, a different case. A risk, of in, a, a risk of the appearance of indiscretion. But we had a really mature person witnessing to her. Uh, the Lord. Um, so he was dealing with someone at maybe the bottom of society. But she, the opposite of don't. You know, stay away from your old friends, they might drag you down. She went to her old crowd and shared Christ, and many were saved. Um, we didn't take the time, but Matthew was the same thing, right? Uh, wow, I've met Jesus, let me have a party and introduce all my friends to Jesus. <laughs> so, uh, I think my wife told me of some friends of ours. Hmm. No, I'm, I'm not remembering who it was now, it's just as well. Oh, it's on the tip. Somebody was saved. Somebody got saved. And the youth pastor. Ah, it's gone. Anyway, I think they were told to shun their old, old friends. Because um, they might drag them down or something. Oh, maybe it was Hannah was telling me about someone she met like that. And the person's totally turned off of Christianity because once her friend got saved, she shunned them all, you know. So there's that. Uh, I don't see that in Scripture. Evangelism. So we've looked at uh, two scenarios in John. Let's look at two more and see if we can see a pattern here. Uh,
John chapter 9. All right, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And uh, he shares about how he's the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for the Holy Scriptures. Father, we never want to handle them flippantly or lightly. We want to learn, God, and grow. And we earnestly desire, Father, to grow in prayer, to move God. Lord, that you might move us and that uh, we might be fruitful in winning others to Christ. Help us as we look into the word, Lord, to do it with profit and not merely an exercise. Uh, Commit our little study to you, Father, and ask that you would nurture the truth in our hearts. Amen. Amen. All right, so that's, we remember this story. Remember the plot line, right? And the drama that comes into this man's life through his encounter with Jesus. So, uh, a bit of a side issue there. And uh, the Bible's written like this on purpose. So, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Whether the disciples were overthinking or not thinking is not clear. Were they thinking On the foreknowledge of God, God knew this man would be a sinner, so he smote him with blindness before he was born. Just kind of hit him back first, so to speak. Um, Because obviously he didn't sin before he was born. He was born blind. So were they thinking about the foreknowledge of God or were they just not thinking? For his parents, who's he being punished for? It reveals a common thought. Even now people think, what did I do to deserve this? I think that. I look at my happy, blessed life and I think, oh, I did nothing to deserve this. I deserve such misery. But here I am unspeakably blessed. So there's different ways of looking at it. In any case, the Lord um, said it wasn't for his sin or his parents, but he's been put there as a vessel for Christ's glory. I remember, I won't mention him because it's not necessary. He's a man of some antiquity, long since gone to glory, meet his reward. But he wrote that he could not accept this passage as written, and so he went to the Greek, and there's no punctuation in the Greek, so he repunctuated it so it didn't mean what it says. Because he could not stomach the idea that God would have somebody born blind and grow into adulthood just so that he could then be healed and glorify God. Um, But uh, (laughs) that is actually what happened, no matter how you punctuate it. And um, he was born blind for the glory of God. And God is going to reward him. Remember what Paul said, the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared. God knows the glories he has in store for this man. And... Yes, he can jolly well suffer a little bit so that he has the privilege of magnifying Christ. 
Paul suffered lots. God is not indifferent to this man's suffering. God is with him. God's with the sparrows when they fall. But um, neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents. There's three sinless people. Right? Or does the context, are you going to take literally what the words say? This man has not sinned. You have Christ's own words. Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents. And I just have a word to the literalists that we do need to look at what the meaning is. And not just literally the sentence. Because it's obvious that the Lord is talking about the fact that this blindness is not a judgment for sin rather than a pronouncement that these are three people who have never sinned. And it's a glaring example of how foolish it is to, to one, just try and force literal things. We need to understand what is said. And there's many passages we can look at. What is the Lord really saying? Not, do I, not what do I think it says or what I want it to say. And the other thing is, just ignore people that want to say, see, over here it says, all have sinned. And here Christ says, three people never sinned. Your Bible's contradicting. Throw it. Just let those people go. They don't want to know the truth. They're just trying to be argumentative. Decades ago, I used to spend time disputing with atheist critics online. It's a waste of time. People that will find a contradiction here are not looking for truth. And they're not worth... It's not worth the time. They, of course, are worth a lot as people, but it's not worth the time arguing with them. They're not ready for truth. Don't waste the time. That's by the board. This man uh, obeys Jesus. So Jesus comes to this man and tells him, go and do this. And his obedience brings him into newness of life, right? Um, he's has an, a life-changing encounter with Jesus that was a result of Christ coming to him, speaking to him, and him obeying Christ's words. That's the thing. And his whole life, his ordinary, mundane, suffering life, was to bring him to this point. Um, pointless life. He spent his whole life blind. All the things he's missed out on. All the things he wasn't able to do. All the... I'm sure that the disciples were not the only people to assume that either he was sinful or his parents. And we'll see that later. He has borne the stigma of being considered somebody cursed of God his whole life. And never been able to do what everyone else could do. And then God visits him. And he obeys. The neighbors are amazed. So he's had this life-changing encounter with Christ. The neighbors are amazed. Um, They're confused, right? Hey, isn't this he that sat and begged? Verse 9. Some said, he's like him, but he's, he's, he's bold. It's me. They question him. What happened to you? Jesus, heal me. 
He told me to do this. I did it. And, uh, and then they said, where is he? He said, I don't know. So let's analyze this a little bit. He's had an encounter with Jesus. He's been changed. People inquire about the change. And he tells them plainly what he knows. Tells them about Jesus. What he did to him. And they ask him something else about Jesus. And he says I don't know. That's simple. So in sharing one's testimony. One. Let's just be straight to the point. And two. If we're asked questions that we don't know the answer. Just say it. I don't know. There's all kinds of questions you get asked. If there's a God, why is there all this suffering in the world? All kinds of questions can go all over the place. Now the Lord Jesus, chapter 4, he was asked distracting questions. Where should we be worshipping? This mountain or Jerusalem? He has all the answers and he dealt with it and brought the subject right back to where it should be. But this man, he didn't know. So he said, I don't know. You don't need to have all the answers to testify of Jesus. Isn't that great? You just need to have been changed by him. Such that it is noticeable to those that knew you before. Where is he? I don't know. Now he gets into trouble. They they bring him to the Pharisees. (laughs) Um, It's a bit controversial. It didn't happen according to the tenets of our religion. So let's get the religious authorities on it. It was a Sabbath day, and Jesus made the clay. Now this can't be right, because this is work. This is religious prejudice, brethren. So they interrogate him. His story's the same. He put clay on my eyes, I washed, and do see. And this is there. They say, well, this man's not of God, because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Now, some, we don't have many here from the old colony... But they'll have that. Second baptisms, not of God. Um, I had, uh, oh yes. And this is a lovely man, but the Lord, uh, Lord healed our third child. When she was a baby, she had a munged up eye, remember? And uh, my wife would clean it and shortly thereafter it's all crusted over with pus again. She can't open the eye. It would require surgery to fix it. And uh, the Holy Ghost just spoke in my heart. Pray for the child. So we got her in her little baby seat and put her on the, on the table. We got Matthew and Hannah, two and one or something like that. Three and two, whatever it was. How old are you? 33? She's, she's 30 zero. So you'd have been three. Hannah would have been two. And she would have been zero. Something like that. So he'd have been three, Hannah's two, having a family prayer meeting. I don't know if we used Italian dressing because it had olive oil in it or if we had olive oil in the house. Anointed the little baby. We prayed and the Lord healed her. Next time we looked at her eye, it was clear and it's been clear ever since. And I shared that testimony with a pastor who was locked in his own religious system. And because I wasn't a pastor, it wasn't God. So maybe it was the devil that made her have that eye thing. It was the devil that made me pray for her. And then the devil to trick me 
remove the sickness that I think so that I would be deceived about healing because God wouldn't do that because I'm not a pastor. He's <laughs> telling me this to my face. We're going to the same church. Oh dear. This is religious prejudice, brethren. This is religious prejudice. This doesn't line up with my theology, so it's not of God. That's it. You're not a pastor, so God wouldn't do that to you. Therefore, it was of the devil. It's that simple. Um, remember, they called the Lord, you know, he did it by Beelzebub. So, uh, much greater miracles, not just that little healing that the Lord did. Um, so, they, they uh, say, this man's not of God, he keeps not the Sabbath day. Others, they're thinking, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? So, you see, they're thinking, hmm, maybe we've got this wrong. Good to have a bit of humility. So they go at the blind man again. What do you say? I think he's a prophet. So, do you think, was this man correct? Was Jesus a prophet? Yes. Much more than a prophet. Did he, uh, did he adequately describe the Lord? No. Was the Lord upset that he didn't adequately describe him? Right, we're looking at evangelism. We're looking at the limits of knowledge and how God is still with the man and blessing him. That's the thing. He's a prophet. But they, they still didn't believe. Don't be surprised, right? Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. They didn't believe, and uh, they called the parents, and they asked, saying, Is this your son? His parents said, This is our son. He was born blind, but we don't know what happened. You ask him. And they feared the Jews, because they've already agreed that if any man did confess him, he should be put out of the synagogue. So his own parents feared men more than they loved him. Wow, what a letdown. Let us not be... Discouraged if testifying for Christ costs us close relationships. His parents would rather back off from him than lose their social standing in their religious community. What a thing. They go at him again. All right, just chalk it up to God, and this man's a sinner. And he, so this man, he's at least a thinking man. Well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. I'm not going to argue with you, but here's the proof. This is what he did to me. And they, they're going at him again. And he says, look, I've already told you. Why would you hear it? Will you also be his disciples? And they reviled him. You are his disciple. We're true. We're of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. We don't know this man. And look, look at his reasoning. Herein is a marvelous thing. You don't know from whence he is. Yet he hath opened my eyes. This man is growing in his understanding. He's thinking. We know that God doesn't hear sinners. 
But if a man be a worshipper of God and doeth his will, him hear. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Here's the old prejudice. Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Don't be surprised if the pride of those who stand on their religious learning is offended at your reasonable answer, right? And let us not be proud, so proud that we can't receive the word of God from somebody that we deem less knowledgeable than us, right? Pride's an awful thing. It's horrible to look at it there. Let's not... Let's make sure there's none in the mirror. Right? Now, what word would you use? Now, there's no way to get that question wrong. I've asked what word you would use to describe this man. If you could describe this man, his conduct in this passage, one word, what would it be? Brother Abe? This man. This blind man who's now sighted, look at his conduct from the time Christ has healed him to where we are in the narrative. What one word do you see to characterize his behavior? You want to think about that some more? Frank. His name is Frank. That's interesting. He's at peace. Frank means blunt, direct. Yeah, direct. Yeah, so Direct, he's at peace. Nathan? Honest. Storm? Humble. Conrad? Thankful. Matthew? Straightforward. He's Frank. Frank, straightforward. What a name. Now you're all right, because I asked what word you would use. See, there's no wrong answer to that. I looked at it and I thought, faithful. But we could argue he wasn't under any commission. So. It was all of those things. He was humble. He was direct. He was at peace. He wasn't all het up. They were agitated. He wasn't. Uh, he was faithful. After, not during, not before, after he's been through this process, Jesus found him and reveals himself further. Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? I know you're a prophet. Who is the Messiah? The Lord says, you're speaking to him. Lord, I believe. Uh, this is an amazing passage because what we see here, no one was converted through this man that we see, but he made a stir. He was faithful. He spoke what he knew. And because he was unashamed of what he knew, he was faithful, he was humble, he was honest, he went forward, he got further revelation of Christ. And... Uh, was further, uh, further transformed. So uh, he fulfilled God's will for his life there. And we can only assume he continued to do that. Not every God-ordained testimony results in immediate conversions of others. But it's still the will of God. Uh, he still justified God. 
Our ignorance is not offensive to God as long as it's not through laziness or negligence. God rewards our faithfulness with further revelation. This man was minding his own business. The Lord healed him. He got him into a whole lot of trouble. And he loved truth more than he loved the opinions of others. This is a key. This was righteousness. And so this brought him... This attracted the Lord Jesus. The Lord allowed him to go through all of this alone. And when it was over, they cast him out. That's when the Lord drew near to him. And I would say, brethren, let us not turn aside as we're going through difficult things socially. Whether it's our family, our community, our our church group, you know, whatever. Now, I trust that that wouldn't be here. If somebody got healed, that we wouldn't all be a bunch of hypocrites, right? But let's take the principles and apply it. Uh, the, The thing here is, this man had a suffering in his life, and God allowed it to continue for a season until the time was right for Christ to heal it so that Christ could be manifested so that he could be um, known as Savior for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. The most normal and righteous thing in the world for this man to have been done while he was blind was to be wishing and praying that he would be healed. He might have prayed it every day since he learned to pray. And one day that prayer was answered. I mean, if you were a blind man, it's hard to imagine your life without Christ... Would you have been praying that God would somehow heal you? Why not? And wishing for it. So let us, uh, let us not lose heart if something persists long in our life. No, it's different. Christ has come. Heaven is accessible. There isn't some um, special day. But there's still the timing of God. When the right people are in the right place that God wants to reach then that's the time for him to do the miracle that he has in mind or the the miraculous, seemingly miraculous circumstance. There's a timing in God's life. Let us be faithful before, during, and after. And in the midst of it, what do we have? Is this man right out of the gate testifying of Jesus? Now, Jesus changed him. People inquired, and he just spoke freely. And he just told what he knew. Here's what Jesus did to me. This is the key. Are we seeing a principle here? The, um, uh, let's do a recap. And then I'm going to leave us again to analyze the next one. And then we'll go into the book of Acts, God willing. John chapter 1. Andrew. Here's John. Behold the Lamb of God. He gets his brother. Peter brings him. They follow, and uh, I think James and John might have been with him. I don't remember off the top of my head. It doesn't matter for our purposes. And they, they are with Jesus, right? Come and see is what the Lord says to him. Rabbi, where dwellest thou? Come and see. Then he finds Philip. Philip gets Nathaniel. We found Messiah. Nathaniel's incredulous. Philip says, come and see. The basis there, they're sharing an encounter with Christ that is not a lot of theological verbiage. 
It is testimony of personal encounter with Christ. This is fundamental to witnessing. Witnessing to people that you know and you're telling them real things that Christ has done for you. This is where we start with evangelism. We don't start with theological arguments with religious people. We start with people, real people, with real needs, and we tell those people what Jesus did for us. Because that's what people need. Jesus came for the needy, and you should have your real needs met by the real Jesus, and you can tell other people what Jesus really did for you. And it, you can be as ignorant as ignorant. You've got something real to tell somebody, you can tell them. And some of them, like the woman at the well, uh, a lot of those people, they came to Jesus. We've, we heard him ourselves, we believe. Or the religious and the proud and the, the cowardly, like this man. Nobody stood with him. Nobody else knew the Lord, but he was faithful. Don't judge your faithfulness or others by how many people come to the Lord. He was faithful. He did what he ought to have. In this episode, lots of people involved. We don't read of a single one, I don't think, that actually came to Christ. That woman won the whole city. But would you say she was faithful and he wasn't? They both said, she said, come see a man that told me all that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? He said, my man that's Jesus made me from blind to seeing. We've never seen anything like this in the history of the world. And Jesus did it for me. Obviously he's of God. Isn't that a faithful witness? And yet nobody believed and they cast him out. This man, everyone rejected him and cast him out. Even his own parents backed off. That woman, the whole city came. So this, I think, is, although we all want the results of the woman, let us not judge anything before the time. We've gone from the easy street of the family and close friends coming to Christ because they were seeking to strangers coming in droves to the more common experience where you're on your own. But going through the experience, notice that it was through the experience of witnessing for Christ and being rejected by Christ that he got more of Christ. Sorry, being rejected by others for Christ's sake. All right, so he witnessed for Christ. He had an encounter with Christ. He witnessed for Christ. He was rejected for Christ's sake. And so he got more of Christ. So there's a sequence there. Um, there's a pattern there. Let's be encouraged with that. All right. What I would like us to do to keep us from falling off to sleep is look at then. So we've, we, what I've done is we've walked through these passages and analyzed it to um, get principles of evangelism, to analyze what's going on. What I'd like us to do is look at chapter 11 in the encounter of Lazarus and see what's going on there and how we can apply that to the um, theme of witnessing, of evangelism, of testifying for Jesus. And share together on John chapter 11 what is going on, right? We're looking at testifying of Jesus. How that's accomplished and what is the result. And we'll go not just chapter 
11. We'll go right through to chapter 12, verse 11. So from John chapter 11, verse 1 to John 12, verse 11. That's the passage and the context. And we're looking at testifying of Jesus. Go. The witnessing that's been going on has been primarily what kind of witnessing? Testimony. Testimony of real encounter with Christ. Life-changing. So that's what we're looking at. And that, I think, is what we're going to see in this passage as well. So you're looking at who had the encounter with Christ, what was changed, uh, who did the testifying, whether it's the person or the deed, what was the response, those kinds of things. That's what we're looking at. All right? And how would we then apply that in 21st century Canada today? All right, take some time, maybe 15 minutes, and then we'll carry on. Identify the person who had the life-changing encounter with Christ. And then the effect of that person's life-changing experience. And what was their activity? What was their witness like? Identify those three things as a starting point. And then you can extrapolate it backwards. So this, um, the, the blind man... Jesus went on to teach, you know, I've come that the blind might see. So he used physical blindness to teach about spiritual blindness. We see that in the previous passage. And the Pharisees like, are we blind also? We didn't read that, but that's the context. He, um, earlier when the feeding of the 5,000, then he said, I'm the bread of life. So he used a physical reality to describe a, a spiritual reality. So that would be the next thing. Who had the life-changing encounter with Jesus? What was the person's witness? And then what was the result? And then what is the spiritual parallel to that physical encounter? And once you identify that, then you can start to see other parallels to the people who are related to the person who was changed by Christ. And what would those things look like in a Christian's life? But, so start with those three. Who got changed? What was their witness? And what was the result? Start with that. Are we ready for a larger group discussion? Or we want more time in a more intimate groups? Are we good? Who had the life-changing encounter? Lazarus? All right. What happened to him? Easy questions. You're going for two out of two? He was raised from the dead. So what was the testifying done? How did this testimony of Lazarus's life changing in the most dramatic sense of that phrase? How was this testimony done? Did Lazarus go around so far as the narrative is concerned, telling everyone, I was dead and now I'm alive. Is that anywhere in the text? No. Okay. So how did the word get out? So good things to understand. 
Eyewitnesses. People that knew him personally before his life-changing encounter and afterwards were amazed at what they saw and they told everybody else. So far as we know, Lazarus didn't say anything. We read on that? Yes, but that was an unnecessary mechanism for the evangelism. It's just close family asking him that, right? What was it like to be dead? I don't know. I was dead. Uh, what was it like to, what's it like to sleep? You know, I don't know. Okay, so Lazarus was changed from death to life. Those that knew him before and after, saw it, were amazed and told. What was the reaction to that news? Two reactions, all right? You give us one, and then they'll give us the other one. Okay, so not only do we want to stamp out Christianity, we want to kill you. All right, what a lovely response. Thanks for that. Um, not, hey, we got some other sick people, maybe could heal them. Let's add more death. Good. Lovely. So don't be surprised, the world hasn't changed much. Okay, so this was a hostile response. Not only do we hate Christ, now we hate you because you've been changed by him. What other response was there? Okay, so that's, is there, an, is there a third then? So Mary's now a worshiper. Is there a third response? Many people believed. So we've got three effects. Now, I think we've got the order exactly backwards. I think, uh, well, not exactly backwards, but let's see. Um, yeah, no, so... The worship was the first response. Well, maybe not the first. Let's see. Uh, well, in chapter 12, chapter 12 lays it out. Mary worshipped, and then you got know, the religious murmurs over the worship. Then many Jews knew about it, and they came to see Lazarus. So her worship raised curiosity to come and see, and then the chief priest wanted to kill Lazarus. So that's chapter 12, but in chapter 11... Um, many Jews came to Mary and they saw and they believed. So that's the first thing. Those that saw believed. And those that saw, some of them went to complain. They saw the change and they, weren't, they didn't appreciate it. Hey, we've got to stop this. And so they, the religious people got a council together to, to put Jesus to death. And, uh, and then we had Mary's worship and so on. All right. So we've got the, the, test, the transformation, the testimony, and the, uh, the response. Now, let's look at a, a metaphor, an allegory, and apply that. What does death represent in the New Testament? What word do we find commonly paired with death in the Bible? Sin. Sin. So, 
This was a literal, physical death. The Lord raised him from the dead. Let's look at a backstory and try and draw some application here. There are numerous applications. Let's look at this one. You have a man who is on the brink of death. And you have family that loves him. Now let's make this like an allegory or a parable. So you have loved ones who care for a loved one who's on the brink of death. You have someone sick, going to die. You have somebody wandering away from Christ, um, from how they were brought up, and they're on the brink of death. So you have loved ones praying for and calling out to Jesus to come and stop this loved one from going further along this path of destruction. And instead of answering your prayer and saving him, Jesus lets him go whole hog into death and sin and destruction. And you are heartbroken because you are praying that he would come back from this flirting with the world and really give his life to Christ. And instead he cast Christ behind his back and went into the riotous, sinful living that we read, uh, we're looking at in... Um, the parable of the father with the two boys. And the result in the heart of Christian people who love the Lord is bitter disappointment that he didn't hear my prayers for my fill-in-the-blank loved one. And instead of him responding to Christ and our loving entreaties, he's cast us off and he's gone and he's completely dead to God and to all righteous people. And we're just grief-stricken. And then he hears the word of God and lives. Hallelujah. Because those prayers are not in vain, though they look like they were completely ignored and the situation worsened to the point that it is unfixable. Are we seeing a parallel? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God is going to glorify himself not only by those faithful ones who grow up and follow in the faith of their family, but by those that go deep into death and are raised from it into newness of life. Can you see that parable, that parallel there? Can you, can you see the, and feel the grief and the pain and the sense of disappointment with God? To allow this in spite of the earnest prayers. Can you see that in the life of a Christian? I see great hope in this. That the Lord, although he seemed to ignore their entreaty, he loved them. And he's still working to a plan that is going to result in greater joy, greater glory, greater impact. By letting it play out to a completely unfixable situation before he intervened. So I see that. And, uh, and the initial transformation was powerful enough to cause everyone to inquire, right? The initial transformation. What was the initial transformation? Hint, this is not a difficult question. Somebody. What was the initial transformation? Hint, this is really easy. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> wrong word. Starts with an R. Raised from the dead. Yeah, resurrection's coming later. Raised from the dead. 
Resurrection, you get a new body with that. Right? We can quibble over that later. I think, that, yeah, I think the, the word in scripture has one application. I could be wrong. Yeah, I think there's only one resurrection. Um, but I could be wrong. We can discuss that over tea. Here's the thing. So Lazarus was raised from the dead. He was, what did it look like? Go right there to the event in our minds as we read it. What did this look like? Was he leap, walking and leaping and praising God like that song, you know? Peter and John went to pray. They met a layman on the way. Right? Remember that children's song? He went walking and leaping. Is that what was going on? What did this look like? Hopping. Hopping. <laughs> It's encouraging. You got a new convert with still baggage. But the transformation from death unto life is so great. It's miraculous. It's eye-popping. And now you have work for the Christians. Loose him and let him go. This is discipleship. This is counseling. This is ministry. This is teaching the ways of Christ. Remove those grave clothes that linger. Do not be discouraged if someone that is transformed still has baggage. Get to work. With the love of Christ. And get those smelly clothes off him. I see encouraging things here. In how the life of God. They hear the word of God and live. Jesus speaks by the Holy Ghost. Whether it's a tract. Whether it's your testimony. Whether it's a preacher. Whether they hear something on the radio. See a billboard. I knew a man. He's a missionary in Holland now. He got saved because a drunk girl said to him, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? He was going to kill himself that night. Instead, he got saved. I've got an evangelism program. Let's get all the sisters drunk and turn them loose. Go around asking people, you know, challenging questions. I don't think so, right? This is the folly of just because something worked, we should do it, right? Get drunk gals going around witnessing. That'll win the world. I don't think so. But that's how he got saved. It's the key is they hear the word of God and live. And he was transformed. He passed from death unto life. And it was visible. The change instead of no righteousness and a stink. And a growing, growing more despicable by the day. Now you had life. You had righteousness. You had complete transformation. Although there were grave clothes. Now by the time everyone else came to see. Later at the worship party. Worship party, I like that. Um, He had his grave clothes off and he was just going from glory to glory. Uh, So there's some encouragement for us there. The key in all of these is a transforming encounter with Jesus. We are not given the task of running around arguing abstract theology. Witnessing for Jesus requires to have been changed by him. And so step one in any evangelism would be, Lord, change me. And then tell people what Jesus has done for you. It's real easy. We don't have to know all kinds of theology. We saw that with the blind man. One thing I know. (laughs) Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Here, people can just see it. Lazarus didn't have to say anything. People saw the change. 
So there are a variety of means from going and seeking out your religious brother or friend, say, hey, look what we've got, to um, having a party for the sinners or going back to your old sinful friends and telling them about Christ, to just having a miraculous encounter and telling everyone, to just people seeing the radical change Jesus has made. All sorts of ways. The common thread is testimony. Testimony on a changed life. That is step one in evangelism. And, you know, well, we've got time. We can go into Acts. But um, when we've been on the road for a while, it's easy. Uh, it's like marriage, relationship, right? First love. The Song of Solomon is about a love affair, but it's also a spiritual allegory. In Revelation, the first church that Jesus reproves has left its first love. The last church is lukewarm. Now, both of those dynamics happen in human relationships. They don't need to. Certainly don't need to happen in Christian relationships, but in marriages. A couple stays faithfully married together, but they've left their first love. They're dutiful and so on, but the spark is gone. He doesn't tickle her anymore. Whatever it is, that there's just not that delight in each other. It's just functional duty, boring. And uh, just do the first works. If you brought her flowers, then bring her flowers again. See, I never did that, so I don't have to do that to do my first works. I just have other things to do. It's economical. Watch how you start because it can get expensive if you have to keep doing those first words. All right? But um, <laughs> you don't have to listen to your dad here, Matthew. You can just buy your wife flowers. But uh, <laughs> do the first works in marriage. It works there uh, in human relationships. And uh, you can be lukewarm in your marriage. So works with the Lord as well. It's the same thing. Uh, Christ changed you, but you've allowed yourself to become stale and dutiful. Do the first works and let him excite your heart. So you've got a testimony. The world doesn't need more arguments about religion. The world needs changed people to introduce them to someone who can change them because they have real problems. They have real sins. They have real bondages. They have real heartaches. And they need a real God to heal their real problems. Not another belief system to struggle with. So this is step one with evangelism. And uh, I can't help but think this is what John was, one of the things John was trying to convey to us on that. Did we have anything more to add on that? What, do we, what about our discovery there? Any Further insights. You folks were chatting up a storm. What, what do you have to add? Well, they were chatting at storm, but you were chatting up a storm. Yes. Okay. So, right. Okay. So that's uh, what uh, Abe's bringing out is that the transformation that Christ has wrought is such that anyone who knew you before should be amazed at what you are now. They see a, a huge difference. Even if you're not perfected or 
equally mature. The difference is amazing. What do we have over here? In the You are boring. Well, I didn't do it. I used to. Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, and we see that in the text as well. Yeah, so not everyone's going to be happy with the change. They can be impressed, amazed, and dislike you all at the same time and cast you out. Over here, anything to add to that? They covered it. All right. I find this passage encouraging for us who have loved ones that are dying but not dead. And even while they breathe, even if they're dead in trespasses and sins, that we can be calling on the Lord. And this scripture should enable us to before the answer to prayer comes, move from the state of feeling let down by God to being hopeful in God. Would you agree? The, the scriptures are given so we can learn, so that we don't have to experience the same thing. They had never, they didn't know this about the Lord. They'd never read this about the Lord. So they were disillusioned in real time. But we can see the end of the Lord here and have hope while we pray. For loved ones. We all have loved ones for whom we're praying. All right. Let's shift gears a little. We did start about 15 minutes late. We'll go another 10 minutes or so. Acts. Let's, let's observe some patterns here. Uh, we get uh, someone stand and read in a long or, or a loud voice. And read Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Uh, Theoden, you want to stand up and read in a good, strong voice? All right, good, go for it. Yes, Acts chapter 1, 13 14. Thank you. Amen. <laughs> Conrad, you ready to read a verse? You good? All right. Acts, you can stand in a good long voice. Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 4.
Thank you. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Jonathan, O master orator, want to stand and read in a good voice? But Peter, standing up with Gilead, and lifted up his voice, and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Job. Thank you. Now we have to fill in the gaps, obviously. We know it's coming. We're just picking on some highlights. Uh... Verses 37 and 38 in Acts chapter 2. Let's get some older men there. Storm, um, storm. <laughs> Sean, oh, oldest of brothers. Amen. And um, verses, verse 41. And we'll do 42. Abe, you're a bit younger than Sean. You can probably stand. I know Sean's not able to. But... Uh, Thank you, brothers. <laughs> oh dear, I do. I mean, we were talking about that in your message, right? I'm, you could have thrown me under the bus with you on that. Um, okay, so can we identify in sequence what has happened? In this sequence, let's hit the, the peaks. Remember, we're talking about evangelism. What was the first significant event that we read of? Who can tell us? Who said that? Prayer. They continued in prayer. Steadfastly. So they continued in prayer. That was event one. What was event two? It's a passage we read. It is getting late in the afternoon. Who, who can tell us? What was event two? They prayed. Remember we read four passages. I think. First one they continued in prayer. Nathan? Well, we had the, I, you know, I was like, that's good. Just blurred out the answers. Event two? The Holy Spirit was poured out by God. So, event one, God's people are continuing in prayer. Event two, God pours out the Holy Ghost. Event three, Matthew? Look back in the text. It is getting late in the afternoon. It's time for marshmallow soup, everyone. Marishloop, right? Naps. Uh, that would be that would be like four of event three. Nathan, you want to help him? Peter preached. Right? Those are sequence. All right, Matthew. Now what did you want to say? 
convicted. Vent five, Abe? No, no, that happened earlier at the before the, at the same time as the preaching. Have they were con- what happened following conviction? Conversion. Thanks, Abe. It's one in every class, eh? All right, so we're seeing a pattern here. Continuing in prayer. Prayer that moved God so that God poured out the Holy Ghost. This is the step that in our country we skip. Okay, we prayed. Now they prayed and they did. We pray and they, we're going to go out and do. But in between, did God move as he did there? They prayed until God moved in such a way that they were effective. They continued praying until God did what he said he would do. This is the thing. This, brethren, for us in our comfortable lives is the hardest step spiritually in evangelism. It's not to pray. Everyone will pray to some degree. It's to pray until we move God so that he moves us. That is the mountain that is so hard to pick. Am I right? Isn't that the thing? To break through wandering thoughts and, and discouragements and unbelief and a sense that you just and into the just something. They prayed alone, I assume, and together. And they prayed lots until God moved. Then they preached as moved by the Holy Ghost. And People were convicted and converted. They were baptized and they continued in the apostles' doctrine. So that's the pattern that we see here in this opening passage in Acts. Right? So we've gone in our study of John from the individual testimony of our experience with Jesus to the evangelism program of the church. These are the two different The one we were looking at the individual encounters with Jesus and individuals testifying of their encounters with Jesus. Now we're looking at evangelism in the church and missions. Do we have time for one more passage? And we'll give it over to you, brethren, to look for this pattern again, another passage. Let's let's look for it. Um, See if this is a pattern of any kind that repeats itself. Uh, we could skip one. That maybe is a uh, question. But we can look at it. Uh, Acts chapter 3. Um, verse 1. What do we have in verse 1? What's the key word there or the key activity there? In verse 1. Prayer. Prayer. All right. Then, okay, so there's a miracle that happens. Um, Uh, Acts chapter uh, chapter 3, verses 2 to 8. What is that? What's happening there? Sean? Okay, what gave, what caused the testimony? What caused the changed life? You're right. No, this before. Look at it. Look at what happened. They didn't preach. Miracle of healing. God moved, right? So we're noticing a pattern. Prayer, 
God moved, all right? It attracted attention. Um, Verse 12 and on. What's happening in verses 12 to uh, 12? To the end. Verses 12 to 26. What one word would summarize what's going on there? Begins with a P. Jonathan? Preaching. So they're praying. God moved. Attracted a crowd. There was preaching. Um, Verse 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. What happened there? Conrad? Acts chapter 4, verse 4. What's happened? Many believed. So we've seen a pattern. Prayer. God moved. Preaching. After God moved, convert. That's twice. Two out of two. That's, brethren, are we, are we getting a pattern? And this is what I see for the church today. Is one, we as individuals draw near to the Lord Jesus and have a testimony fresh in our hearts from the Lord Jesus and testify to individuals that are in our lives. It's a normal course of our life. And some of us might need to seek out family and friends that we've lost touch with and share with them what Jesus has done for us, in us. It's got to be real, one-on-one, with people with whom we have some relationship. And two, for the evangelism of the church, is to become a people, to grow in prayer such that we can move God until God moves us. That's what I'm seeing here. And there are more passages to look for, but we're out of time. We can search those through in our leisure. That's what I see on evangelism. And this is not easy to do. The flesh could put in a little time prayer and let's get an activity going. I don't know. Let's, let's take bagels to the police station and just tell them we bless them in Jesus' name as a church. Let's do stuff because we can. You think I'm making this up. Actually, in our day, it was muffins. We took uh, a contingency went from the church and took a basket of muffins to the local police station. Do you remember that, Milo? Decades ago. Three decades almost. None of them got saved, but we felt good about ourselves. I don't mean to be unkind, but we've got to face reality. We are in a spiritual warfare, and the power of the church is the Holy Ghost. From God, and God is pleased to give the Holy Ghost to a people that are passionate prayers. Let us become such a people. Let us get in shape spiritually. Let's draw near to God. Let's learn to pray alone and together, to pour out our hearts. I forget who I was talking with earlier today. We want to be those that can just pour out our hearts. We don't care. We're not worried about what anyone in the congregation thinks of our praying. We're not inhibited by any personality or fear of man. We just pour out our hearts to God. Let's exercise ourselves to do that alone and together. And follow in the footsteps of those not only in the first century but in every century since that have partaken of the same power of God and have been the same kind of praying people. That's the evangelism program of the church. May God help us and enable us 
to do that. Nathan, you're carrying a baby, but are you good to close a meeting in prayer? Or would you rather call on someone else? Lift up your voice louder than his.